Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 48, A Line in the Sand. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I'm hearing from Centro Cultural Akamama that interest is growing in the archaeological program that they are hosting this summer. I hope some of you have signed up or are thinking about it. And if you are thinking about it, then I suggest reaching out to Centro Cultural Akamama at info at akamama.com to get more details about the program to see if it is something you'd be interested in participating. That again is info at aqamama.com. Don't forget to follow the show on social media. We have our A History of the Inca Facebook page, as well as our Twitter account at Inca Podcast. Following the show on those platforms is the best way to stay up to date on what's happening with the show. Sorry we're not on TikTok yet. Should we be? I don't know. But Facebook and Twitter are where we are at now. So please give the show a follow if you can. And thanks. Now then, last time we made a drastic shift in the narrative. We left the Inca and traveled across the Atlantic Ocean to Spain to learn more about what forces influenced the conquistadors. We started with the religious intolerance that had been building in Iberia for centuries as the Christians pushed the Moors south until they only occupied the area of Granada. This religious intolerance not only led to the Reconquista being completed with the fall of Granada on January 2nd, 1492, but it also resulted in the expulsion of the entire Jewish population of Spain just four months later. Meanwhile, the Spanish Inquisition had been raging on for decades, reinforcing the violence against not only those not of the Christian faith, but those who were suspected of whispering heresy. Otto de Fe was employed for those persecuted in the Inquisition, and such violence was carried over into the Americas and exacted upon the native population. We saw that during the Morales expedition to the Gulf of San Miguel, where it is said that the caciques were fed to the dogs, and prisoners were stabbed and left behind as the Christians retreated from native attack. Of course, there was always the lure of power and riches. Gold held considerable sway over the conquistadors, and they continually sought more and more as their expeditions fanned out village to village. More power meant more sane where those expeditions went, and usually a cut was given to the one in charge. Thus, backstabbing to secure that power was common. We covered several different characters last episode, but were mainly focused on Vasco Nunez de Balboa. He experienced an unexpected rise to power, sought fame and fortune, entered into diplomacy with some of the native groups, as well as also exploiting others. And then, eventually, it all came crashing down, resulting in his execution. 
Francisco Pizarro was mostly in the background of our story last time. Now he steps into the spotlight as he searches for Peru. Enjoy. When we last left Pizarro, he was retired on a cattle farm. He had a business partner, Almagro, and there had been only one expedition south towards the kingdom he had heard contained vessels of gold. However, his cousin Hernan Cortez had captured the leader of the Aztecs, Moctezuma, earning Cortez instant fame and fortune. However, while there had only been one single expedition south, there were bound to be more shortly. In fact, another attempt was lined up to take place in 1524. Juan de Basarlo was the conquistador who received the commission. However, Barsarlo died unexpectedly early in the year, and the commission opened up. Now, Pizarro was no longer a young man at this point in his life. He was 54 years old, and his business with Almaragro was quite profitable, raising somewhere between 15 and 18,000 pesos of gold. The conquistador could have continued living in retirement and would have been quite comfortable for the rest of his life. However, this was very likely Pizarro's last opportunity to find the land of riches the son of Camagre had mentioned all those years ago. He wasn't getting any younger, and it was only a matter of time until somebody would make it to this seemingly mythical land. So on November 14, 1524, Pizarro set sail. Pizarro's ship landed in southeastern Panama, made an expedition inland, and traveled south until they reached Puerto de la Hambre, or the Port of Hunger. Of course, this was not the native name of the place, that is lost to time, but it became known as Puerto de la Hambre because when Almagro, who had set sail a bit later, as his role was that of a supply runner, when he finally found the expedition, the conquistadors were starving. After some provisions, Pizarro was only able to sail for 10 more days when they were forced to turn around and seek additional supplies. He sent one ship to the Pearl Islands, and when that ship finally returned, somewhere between 20 and 30 men had died. Pizarro's group was forced to retreat due to the lack of food and attacks by native groups. This was unfortunate for Almagro, who returned with more supplies, for he had to go and look for his business partner. Doubly unfortunate when he ran into the very group that Pizarro had retreated from. Almagro engaged the natives and lost an eye in the ensuing conflict. Despite his terrible fortune, though, Almagro and his group were able to retreat from the natives and eventually find Pizarro and his men. No doubt grateful to see Almagro, Pizarro had to send him back to Panama for yet again more supplies, while they held their position. Almagro listens but finds Pedrarius most unhappy with how the expedition is going. It seems that Pizarro had sent a message containing gold to the governor, but also included a status update, 
and apparently Pizarro had told the truth about the state of the expedition. Yet, somehow Amagro was able to receive more men. We are told that Amagro is, quote, wonderfully skilled at gaining the hearts of men. So we can only suspect that Amagro turned on his charm and convinced the governor that the mission of the expedition was still viable. Oh, and that it would be a great idea to make him an equal partner on the expedition, which Pedrarius obliged. Returning to Pizarro, the pair sailed down to what is today the San Juan River in present-day Colombia. While Amagro was sent back to do another supply run, one ship with Bartolome Riz in charge came across a native vessel. After some attempts at communicating, it was revealed that the ship was from a place called Tumbes and that a great king called Wanakapak ruled over them. From this ship, gold was taken and men were taken captive as well, in the hopes that they could be turned into interpreters for the Christians. Riz then returned to Pizarro. Meanwhile, Pizarro and his men went from village to village, trying in vain to find something, anything, resembling the land of riches that they had been told of. By the time that Riz returned, Pizarro's men were suffering from mosquitoes, illness, and hunger. Almagro also returned with supplies from Panama, but here, in 1526, he found Pizarro deeply discouraged. The two men had already blown through their monetary reserves and were deep in debt. However, given what they had been through on this expedition alone, starvation, disease, and constantly being shot at, Pizarro might have welcomed imprisonment. Nevertheless, Amagro encouraged Pizarro to keep going. He even offered to change positions with Pizarro. You've done great, but let me take over trudging through the jungle, and you can run the supplies. To that, Pizarro outright refused, and the tension grew so great that swords were even drawn. However, they resolved to keep their roles, and Amagro left Panama to obtain more supplies while Pizarro's party headed for an island called Galo to await for Amagro's return. It seems like cooler heads prevailed, for now. Unfortunately for the two partners, the prospects of the expedition did not improve. A message had been smuggled to the new governor, Pedro de los Rios, petitioning him to allow the crews to return home as the condition of the expedition was dire. Because of this petition, Rio sent Tafur, an officer and lawyer, to Gallo to authorize the return of the men to Panama. When Tafur reached Gallo and announced this to the expedition, men began to flock towards him, despite the pleas of Pizarro, who saw his dream ending before his very eyes. With this before him, Pizarro unsheathed his sword, and with it drew a line in the sand before his men. When he finished, he said, Gentlemen, this line signifies labor, hunger, thirst, fatigue, wounds, sickness, and every other danger that must be encountered in this conquest until life is ended. Let those who have the courage to meet and overcome the 
dangers of this heroic achievement crossed the line in token of their resolution and as a testimony that they will be my faithful companions. And let those who feel unworthy of such a daring return to Panama, for I do not wish to put force upon any man. I trust God that his greater honor and glory, his eternal majesty, will help those who remain with me, though they may be few, and that we shall not feel the want of those who forsake us. Now, it should be stated that there are many sources who claim that it was Tarfur who drew the line in the sand and allowed the men to choose their fate. It is certainly more dramatic having Pizarro be the one who draws the line and then gives a speech, trying to guilt his men into staying. But if you are trying to convince people to stay on a highly dangerous expedition, maybe don't mention the labor, hunger, thirst, and all the rest. Just 16 crossed the line to stay with Pizarro. The rest boarded the ship that brought Tafur and sailed back to Panama. This was the lowest point for Pizarro. A majority of his expedition had left him, they had few provisions, and even fewer prospects. However, Almagro continued to petition Rios to send Pizarro a ship and provisions. And finally, the governor relented. Provisions and a ship were sent to Pizarro, but he only had six months to explore, otherwise face heavy punishment upon his return. With the clock already ticking, Pizarro's meager crew sailed south for 20 days until they came upon a small island. Of course, the conquistadors claimed the island and called it Santa Clara. It became clear quite quickly that the island was a holy site for the town on the mainland. The holy site had a figure of a stone man with offerings of silver and gold, along with beautiful woolen cloth and tunics. The conquistadors set sail and came across four rafts, which Pizarro ordered to return with them to the town on the mainland, a town by the name of Tumbes. Pizarro gave those on the raft a message to relay to the person in charge of Tumbes, saying that the Christians were friendly and wanted to meet. The Caraca agreed to meet with Pizarro, and the two actually dined together, Pizarro giving the Caraca an iron hatchet, some pearls, as well as two pigs and some fowls. The Caraca asked if a couple of Pizarro's men would like to return to the town with him, and Pizarro agreed sending Alonso de Molina and a black man. Apologies, but he is given no name in my sources. The two men were astonished by what they witnessed in the town. Aqueducts, stone houses, a fortress with multiple walls, vessels of silver and gold. They saw a house where virgins were placed to worship the sun, what you and I know to be the Akla. When he heard Molina's report, Pizarro sent another man, Pedro de Candia, to test the accuracy of Molina's account. Candia was permitted to view the town's Coricancha, seeing the golden garden it contained. No doubt, drooling over what he just witnessed, he related all to Pizarro. Prior to leaving Tumbes, Pizarro acquired two men to take with him to be trained into interpreters. 
They would eventually become baptized and their names would become Martin and Filippio. Staying behind at Tumbes, watching as Pizarro sailed away, was Alonso de Molina. We aren't sure if he volunteered to stay, was being punished for some reason, or if he was left there alone. But we know that he died there, never seeing Pizarro or his crew again. As for Pizarro, he was able to sail a little further south after leaving, but his six months were suddenly running out. So Pizarro reluctantly had to sail back to Panama, reaching it in late 1527. But he did so knowing that he had caught a glimpse of the land from the story, and he wasn't going to let it go. (laughs) 